Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. And welcome back to the CIS podcast series, Cybersecurity Where You Are, where we at the Center for Internet Security take on one of the hot topics of the day and try to bring it down to its essence. Get past the acronyms and all the confusion and the fog of more and really talk about things that are of interest to you and that affect our lives in cybersecurity every day. Uh, this week again, I'm joined by my co-host, Sean Atkinson, the CISO for the Center for Internet Security. Welcome, Sean. Thank you, Tony. Much appreciated. Yeah, great to have you back. And the special guest today is Brian Ray. Now, you know, uh, if I told you uh, <laughs> Brian is a lawyer, that's okay. Don't hold him against him. He's a great guy. And we're going to talk a little bit about some uh, a topic that's near and dear to the heart of this podcast, uh, uh, loosely described uh, by us as the convergence of cybersecurity and public policy with a particular emphasis on the term reasonable. So we'll get there. But Brian, if you could introduce yourself to the audience, tell us a little bit about what you do for a living. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, Tony, um, I'm a lawyer, but uh, I'm an academic lawyer. So um, that that lets me um, do lots of interesting things, among which in over the past seven or eight years has been increasingly getting involved in technology and uh, with a particular emphasis on cybersecurity and data privacy. And so uh, now Meredith's colleague of mine and I, about seven years ago, co-founded the Center for Cybersecurity and Privacy Protection here at Cleveland Marshall College of Law. And uh, been pretty much refocusing what I do here at Cleveland Marshall and publicly on, on those areas um, because they're so interesting and there's so much going on. And um, I don't have a technology background, but uh, I've learned a lot <laughs> over the last seven years. And um, one of the motivating um, premises of the center was uh, we both realized, look, the lawyers that we're teaching uh, really need to understand technology. It's everywhere uh, in the legal practice, whether you recognize it or not, from transactional to litigation, uh, even outside of dedicated cybersecurity and privacy practices, which are, are just getting bigger and bigger. And so uh, that's what we do at the center. We try to try to train both our law students and existing lawyers uh, about technology in these areas and also try to help uh, non-lawyers increasingly understand uh, the legal and policy dimensions of cybersecurity and privacy because they really are intimately connected. Yeah, exactly, Brian. And thanks, thanks for sharing that and uh, great work. And we'll, we'll talk uh, in more depth about some of the big issues. But I have to share an anecdote with you, Brian. So, uh, yeah, I'm an old dog technologist in this, and I can't even pretend to understand what you understand. But I, I, I have this distinct memory. So I started at the National Security Agency in the 70s. And it was about 1978, and I had an intern tour in a place called the Computer Security Design Guidance Division. And who, who, I didn't even know there was such a thing till I showed up there. But I, it, I, you know, lucky me, I was in there with some of the wizards of computer security of the day, the 70s and early 80s. And uh, I, I remember literally standing around the coffee pot with the graybeards of the day. And you know, I'm just a dumb intern who, who showing up had one one class in computer science. And the wise old the wizards are you know, almost literally stroking their gray beards. And one of them says, and I'll never forget this, Brian. You know, any day, you know, if once the lawyers get involved in this stuff, they're going to ruin everything. And, you know, and everyone's nodding and I'm the young intern. Yeah, I guess that sounds right. You know, because the model was brilliant technologists will solve the problem, right? There'll be an invention, a mathematically verified kernelized operating system that will handle data perfectly and I can demonstrate that mathematically, right? But that, that was the view of the technologists. We will create a technical solution to these complex problems. And it sounded pretty good. You know, hey, I'm just the intern and yeah, these are smart people and some of them you know, were the luminaries of the day. And it took me several years to figure out, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> there's something missing here. You know, decision makers are impressed by technologists, but they never actually do what we say to do. They 
they spend more time listening to their lawyers and their auditors and so forth, right? So at the end of the day, this, this whole business is really about decision-making. It's not about technology. And we need great technology. We need great technologists. But, you know, so your, uh, you know, your role in this, the role of the school, uh, you know, are really right at the heart of that, right? It's, it's, we need technology. Technology gives us incredible benefits. But at the end of the day, this is about risk, you know, economic risk, social risk, and so forth. And we don't manage those by expecting perfect public health or perfect, you know, public medicine or perfect bridges. Uh, we want good ones and we codify a lot of things. But at the end of the day, we have to make decisions about risk, right? Imperfect decisions, but hopefully well-informed. And that's the, you know, that, so, so I wanted to share that with you because that was so, you know, I grew up in a really different world and you've really taken this problem on, uh, this sort of translation problem, I'll call it, into public policy. Yeah, and, and so before we get into the weeds of that, you, you know, s same thing with, with lawyers. You know, law students come in, and uh, my, my joke to my, to my first-year law students is, well, you know, you guys think you're, you're going to become like wizards. You're going to learn the law, and it's like casting spells. And, and we reinforce that by using a lot of Latin. And... Uh, but but the reality is law is indeterminate and um, or anything interesting in law and really most even some you know some minor questions and uh, what a lawyer's job is is exactly that uh, to understand manage uh, and help your clients uh, to understand and manage the risks that they're facing and the law it sort of starts with the law for a lawyer but it, it immediately jumps to the substance of whatever area you're you're working in. And uh, what's, what's really interesting, when we first created, we have a certificate program for the uh, JD students, the law students, uh, now a fully online uh, master's for non-lawyers. Uh, and the core of it, we decided, well, we need to teach technology to these lawyers. So we're gonna, we're gonna get a technologist. We have a fantastic, he's, he's now the CISO of uh, Kent State University, but he's, he's actually returning to private practice. But, uh, we, we worked with him to adapt the technical textbook that he uses in cybersecurity for computer science students uh, to teach law students. And what he tells me consistently is, uh, and we draw students from technical disciplines actually in these courses as well, but what he tells me is the law students are actually better at it than most of his technical students because they've already gone through first year law and actually gotten sort of trained in the, in the analytical thinking that's at the base of risk management, and for what he says, that's the hardest part for him to teach the, the the technical students is to understand that, as you said, it's not technical design is a huge part of it, and technical implementation. But at the end, the end of the day, cybersecurity is risk based, and so the what's amazing is the technical and non technical students actually can once they both learn that, and the law students come from that sort of as a matter of their discipline come from that basis, you know, they start to talk to each other really in the same language. And just now it becomes a matter of translating the technical realities into a risk framework. And likewise, the legal frame, the legal requirements back into that and figure out, well, what's the solution here, right? Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, Brian. I think, uh, you know, this, this complexity of being able to see the, the problem from multiple dimensions. It's one of the reasons that you're know, thrilled to have Sean here. So in our company, Sean is this sort of uh, translator, right? The, the, who has to work at the boundary of technology, but also policy, all the legal uh, structures that we have to operate according to based on geography and data and so forth. And Sean, any, any reaction to, to Brian's uh, uh, framing of the problem that way? Oh, absolutely. No, it's fantastic. It is exactly the framing. And I think that frame of mind is critical because, Brian, really my perspective, and this is moving forward, is that really as, um, you know, as we see legislation coming through for privacy, you know, GDPR coming through kind of set a precipice. We've got Ohio, Ohio uh, data protection, another piece from a state perspective. And where is that going to go federally is that a lot of people working in uh, cybersecurity are going to have to have some tenant of understanding the legal issues, but then also our legal are going to have to understand cybersecurity. There's just, it's, uh, it's becoming so entwined that I think that the need there is, is really exemplified by a role. And I'll state this role, and I just really want to get your thoughts, Brian, is the, the data protection officer 
oh, this is, you know, and coming from GDPR and other, this is the unicorn that not only understands controls and how they're implemented, but where the data is and how it's managed from a risk perspective. And the control frameworks are all managed, monitored, audited, and in compliance, uh, you know, every second of every day of every transaction. And it, it, it seems to me that we, we're getting to that point where we've got that coordination and requirement for having that type of attitude within an organization. Do you think that's the right uh, approach as we move forward? And you, are you seeing that coming from either through students or the requirement to have these elements of knowledge to be successful uh, in, in these spaces? Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, what's interesting is you know, the, the technical folks in cybersecurity, uh, in particular the forensic firms, a lot of a lot of those professionals, they, they know the law like, you know, they and, and just just underscores your point. They know it because they have to. Right. If you're doing incident response, wh what are you what are you mostly doing? You're not, you know, you're not just generically trying to understand the client system. You're very specifically trying to understand well, what happened and is it reportable or does it what regulatory consequences does it have? Obviously, you also generically want to get the client back to. Uh, a, a better space and and understand you know what what assets have been touched and what they need to do to to get their system up and running in the case of a ransomware type attack, but at bottom incident response is is about that understanding of what are the legal consequences, uh, and what I tell my law students is you know if you're going to be an incident response lawyer, um, you know you you got to understand the technical side of cybersecurity because you have to talk to that technical team and you have to make a decision together in consultation with one another, well, what, what do we need to do? And often the, the clock is is really, really short for uh, the reporting on that. So that's kind of the, you know, where the rubber hits the road most directly. But, you know, you brought in privacy. For a long time, you know, a lot of there, a lot of privacy folks sort of didn't, didn't think they needed to understand the technology that well because, well, privacy is policy-based. Uh, you know, it's really about, it, you know, it's a kind of compliance orientation. Uh, but what I tell my students, if you're doing privacy, like, like you need to understand what you're saying. You, you, you can easily get cookie cutter privacy policies that comply with various uh, regulatory regimes um, and then, you know, say, all right, you need to do these 20 things. But if you don't understand the consequences of that operationally for the organization, then you're not really helping. Right. You're just you're just setting a bar. That, that might be too high, or you need to be able to be a creative partner with the technical side and say, okay, here's what the law requires. Here's kind of standard practices, but if this is gonna cause you know, an incredible amount of difficulty operationally, that's gonna you know, severely disrupt the, the client's business objectives, well, that's not, right? that's not your job. Your job, and again, technologists are ahead of the game on this because they've always, right, as the IT folks, their job has always been to support the business. Lawyers and compliance folks often can come in thinking, well, our job is to say no. And you know, what we try to emphasize is your job is to say, not that way maybe, but then in order to understand what the alternatives are, you really do have to have some understanding of, as you said, you know, it's, it's all about data, right? And you need to understand where, where does, you know, what are, the op what are the options, what are the alternatives to obtaining, storing, providing access to, uh, and, and then getting rid of data, right? That's really at the, at the heart of privacy. And it's, it's a big chunk of cybersecurity, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If I could just, Tony, I just want to give kind of, the, this is the analogy. This is the, uh, this is my thought process is you can start with data for both privacy and cybersecurity. It's the lifeblood of what's going through our system. So I have to understand how it's stored, processed, managed, controlled. From a privacy perspective, I need to understand those exact same things, but I may have a different context, but start with the data. And now we've got a common language. Now we can start to communicate through that uh, through that paradigm of how's the data being managed? Well, I need to know how it's being produced, how we're collecting it. Okay, well, I'll tell you the methods of collection and how we're protecting that on the back end. Okay, that's good. Are we talking pseudonymization? We're talking encryption, things of that nature. And it's that I found has been such an impetus in terms of getting both parties uh, you know, to develop policy and also understand control implementation and really risk management uh, within an organization. Yeah, that reminds. So in the very earliest days of, the, and these are these are great points, right? This is a, a we're not going to teach everyone to be an expert in the other person's field, but we have to find 
a level of understanding, right, that addresses the issues in both. And I remember the very earliest days triggered by your conversation of sitting down with, uh, heaven help me, NSA lawyers and and trying to figure out that common ground, right? So so technologists are looking at, uh, Sean, are you old enough to remember a network general sniffers, you know, pulling pa packet captures off the wire, right? And lawyers and trying to teach them, well, here's what a packet looks like. Here are the fields. And oh, and by the way, they have to be, you know, so you've got bits until you reassemble until you you know so when does it have meaning right when does it start to enter the world of things that they believe the lawyers need to be be identified protected and and i remember the the uh, you know so i i i uh opened with some of my naivety uh brian about you know the, the field right and i have to again i'll cheerfully admit to all my faults that i'm aware of you know that as me the technologist i would and this is a a cartoon here. I used to think of the law as binary, right? You, you follow it or you don't, right? You mean you don't. Well, obviously it's messy and analog and it took a while for me to like realize that. Well, it's sort of the same in the opposite direction. Right? The lawyers would look at us and go, what do you mean you don't know where the data has been? Well, there's, there's, uh, you know, there's cues and there's, you know, all, I mean, data moves all over. In fact, a lot of IT is designed to abstract you away from the physical, right? To I don't care where it's stored. Well, what do you mean you don't care where it's stored? If I don't know where it's been, how can I determine that you've been responsible in handling it, right? So finding that common ground was a really uh, heavy discussion. And it wasn't about everyone becoming equally expert, but it was about understanding enough to be able to draw conclusions for your your dimension, right? The field that you were trying to address. So it's a really, uh, really fascinating uh, area. And I think, you know, just listening to you two talk, I mean, boy, we are worlds away from where we were you know, not that long ago in terms of this this type of discussion. Well, if I could follow up, I mean, that's you're absolutely correct. And and what's really interesting is as we get the proliferation of laws, not only domestically, but internationally, as Sean mentioned, you know, increasingly you've got either conflicts right around what exactly you have to do or explicit localization requirements. And those those just hit directly on what you just described, right? So now you've got a now you've got like localized data, you know, because because how you know how do you, how do you meet a data localization requirement? Well, you've got to figure out, you know, it's you know functionally it ends up being servers, right? Uh, but more you know more more challenging is well when I, I was part of a big white paper group at the Sedona conference that looked at this and tried to come up with choice of law rules around. All right. Well, who's which jurisdiction's law is going to govern data when, and what do you do with data in transit? And of course, you know, you mentioned the NSA. Well, the big concern driving that we had European lawyers on this group was, you know, the Europeans got upset when it turned out the NSA was, you know, taking advantage of data in transit in certain jurisdictions where they could get easy access and then accessing it, right? Uh, and so, you know, again, that now we're, you know, I, I think maybe five years ago even it, it would have been surprising or there might have been a small handful of lawyers probably most of whom were working in some connection with national security who understood that dimension and now it's just part of the practice yeah it's it's so so fascinating so complex but let me let, let's uh dig into one particular area that we wanted to address in, in this podcast brian and it's about the ohio data protection act and if you could you share with us a little bit because this is really putting this into action right so, getting down to something uh, that's concrete and give us a little background on the, the the context in which that came about and the thinking and the, the, the objectives that people were trying to get to with that. Sure. So um, 2016, then Attorney General Mike DeWine, who's now the governor of Ohio, um, decided appropriately that Ohio ought to be paying um, more attention to cybersecurity in a kind of structured way. Interesting, again, that it comes from the attorney general's office, uh, but actually it was prompted by um, conversations he was having with uh, the CIO and, and some other folks and actually his own, um, his own uh, chief security officer within the AG's office was, you know, was talking about this as a substantive area. Uh, and also then a number of large companies in Ohio had been hit with large data breaches, were, were in the midst of um, both regulatory investigations and um, class action, uh, mainly tort suits involved. And so they were they were concerned. They, they were looking for kind of alternative regulatory approaches. Um, and, and from, you know, from their side, 
um, and this was, you know, this was a big part of the early discussions around the ODPA. They they wanted, you know, they felt like they were doing quite a bit, investing quite a bit of money in cybersecurity, uh, and that in some ways there was a, you know, there was a kind of uh, double hit, right? They were both victims of a, of a crime in most cases when there was a data breach and then getting hit with both regulatory fines and uh, and tort liability. And so both from a public perspective, uh, Ohio really wasn't, you know, beyond having a data breach reporting law, didn't, didn't have much in this area. Uh, and then a, a real, really strong desire on the part of um, several companies who ultimately became part of Cyber Ohio uh, to have a more innovative um, incentive-based regulatory approach. And again, uh, Ohio at that time and and still is um, a Republican-controlled legislature, Republican um, um, governor, and so largely Republican control. So there wasn't going to be a, a California-style law uh, that was sort of off the table. Um, and uh, but they put together a really a really uh, broad based group in Cyber Ohio. They included um, me and my colleague Candace Hoke. Uh, we were at the time the only academic cybersecurity center in a law school, so so it made sense for the AG's office to tap us. Uh, but we had a, a, a couple of um, uh, technical experts from cybersecurity firms, um, and then we had um, lawyers and some technical representatives from. Um, uh, some major companies, and and then from some small businesses as well. Because part of the part of the concern was, well, we don't want to create something that is going to be um, overwhelming to small and mid-sized businesses. And um, the very first thing we did was to start to try to develop this law. And of course, you know, the AG had already at least come up with sort of the bare bones uh, with with his staff of of a proposal. But we spent uh, we spent working through, or at least a year and a half, it ultimately gets passed in 2018, kind of working through the details. Um, and um, it was, it, you know, it, illustrating what we were talking about earlier, having the technical folks on the team was key because uh, we talked about, for example, so so we quickly evolved toward this idea of, well, let's, let's use these major frameworks that are out there already. Uh, the major regulatory frameworks, uh, primarily in healthcare and financial services, um, but also the major industry frameworks, including the CIS, um, the, back then I think it was still the CIS Top 20, uh, but the CIS uh, framework, NIST, um, and ISO uh, 27001, and some others. And, um, you know, let's let's start to look at that. And and so, for example, one of the frameworks that we started with was the, the payment card industry, right? And one of the technical folks quickly said, "Well, hold on, that's not good enough, right? That is a it's a it's a relatively prescriptive framework, uh, lots of details, but tightly, tightly focused on that on the on that ecosystem that, of how a payment transaction you know moves. That 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 cannot possibly be a comprehensive cybersecurity framework that should qualify for some kind of an incentive. So, uh, you know, and and then even within the other frameworks, sort of talking about well, what ex what what are we going to you know, how are we going to use them? What are we going to do? Uh, and ultimately settled on this this structure where it creates an affirmative defense, uh, which, you know, is a legal term that just means even if the plaintiff in a case demonstrates the elements of their claim, which a tort-based claim is what it's limited to, um, you and, and they can show. So, for example, that there was, you know, there was some duty and some breach and they had damages. Well, if you can demonstrate that you qualify for this defense, it basically means you will not be liable. And and so as a policy matter, we create affirmative defenses when we want to um, either protect or reward certain kinds of activity. And so it made sense, well, this will be the incentive, right? If you create a cyber, written cybersecurity program that has some general characteristics drawn from these major frameworks, right? Uh, physical, technical, administrative um, controls, uh, and that, this is the legal language, reasonably conforms to one of these frameworks. We can get into exactly what that means. Um, then you will be entitled to this affirmative defense. And the, the theory was, well, okay, we don't want to have a, we don't want to have a mandatory um, set of requirements. Uh, we want it to be incentive based uh, and it's sufficient enough incentive that you might be able to be absolved of liability in a tort claim. Um, in a in a case related to a data breach, and so that's you know that's what we set up. And uh, I mean, to be honest, my own my own background is as a litigator. I was a little bit skeptical. Um, I sort of felt like, well, I, 
at a minimum, I don't want Ohio to create something that that could be actively incentivize bad cybersecurity or low level cybersecurity. So I was pleased that we came up with something, but I wasn't sure the incentive uh, would do much. Um, and then pretty quickly after it was passed in 2018, to my surprise and delight, uh, there was a lot of activity. Now we don't have any hard data, but it, it certainly lawyers are actively uh, advising clients on this. And we had uh, discussions with in-house counsel at several organizations. We're excited about the idea that this reframes the approach to cybersecurity. Instead of thinking of it as a hammer that's going to come down uh, potentially if you don't get things right, uh, this is you know this is a, a a reward you can work for, and and that that simple reframing seemed to have had positive effect, and also it gave a more concrete but still really flexible set of things to point to, and you so lawyers in house counsel in particular could go to a board and say, hey give us some money to do this <laughs> because we ought to be doing it anyways and we are doing things anyways, but this is now something a little more concrete that we can aspire to qualify for. And that, at least anecdotally, it seemed to have had that yeah, effect. Yeah, it just seems like, uh, you know, when I, I've thought a lot about security frameworks, having sort of lived around them or been responsible for some, Brian. And, and it seems to me there was a lot of wisdom in the in the reframing of the problem, right? And the approach that Ohio took, this, this idea of reuse, you know, and people will say, well, we use commercial standards. Well, that typically means they sort of loosely point at them or they cherry pick pieces of them and they kind of cobble them together to create yet a different one, which is, and those are just not very helpful. So that sort of providing um, alternatives, right? Providing control in the, in the hands of the, uh, you know, of the affected party here to pick, pick the things that make sense. But this idea of incentivized constructive progress and a lot of folks have gotten this wrong over the years and continue to get this wrong, right? right? The idea is we're running past fail tests and the idea is to hammer, right? We're gonna hammer people. And it never leads to the kind of large scale progress that you would like. And so, yeah, I think, you know, the jury is out. No, no pun intended, sorry. But the, 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 you know, the proof is still of building, but this idea of, uh, I'll say, uh, let's give up on perfection. Let's focus on positive direction Right, you know, in a demonstrable way, in one that can be funded, presented, argued about, but at least it, it moves it from this sort of wild west of, you know, uh, hand waving and yelling to something that has structure to it that can allow you to move forward. So, Sean, how about? I mean, this is the world that you live in, right? Responding to things like that. Any, any thoughts yes. here? No, I th again, I think the uh, the element and the um, one of the things I really do like about it is the customizability. You can look at the context of these particular frameworks and what fits for my particular industry, and then allow that to really um, entail the approach that you take. So, obviously, with uh, critical security controls, that's one element. We could look at then um, ISO twenty seven thousand one. If those programs are being built and there's, you know, I like to use internationalization as part of ISO 27001, that has a breadth of capability and a breadth of adoption across the world in terms of this is a good security posture. And, and so I thought that was uh, uh, really great. Uh, again, I think to your point is the, uh, you know, we've suffered a data breach and then we're suffering then said uh, actions against us because, you know, uh, of an underlying issue, vulnerability or or causation of uh, being breached, and, and so it's the double hit. I love the incentivized uh, approach. I think it makes a lot of sense, and um, I'm glad to see the CIS security controls. These are attainable controls that have action and operational perspectives that allow organizations to prove not only that we've got a policy, but also that we've got the capability. And I think there's a huge difference between the two. One of the things, I'll give you a, a little analogy, uh, and maybe this is a little silly, Tony, but I'll use the wizards, right? We've got the technical wizards in the back doing all the work, the technical capability, and I look at kind of the compliance group being the potion makers. I'm going to take some from you. I'm going to take the, you know, the, the, the law. I'm going to put it in the cauldron, and out pops my policy. And here we go. This is what we do. This is how we mitigate risk. So... That's my uh, yeah. <laughs> my new uh, vernacular. I'm going to add to our uh, discussions. Oh, wonderful! <laughs> I, I appreciate that. The, the compliance people, yeah, so, the witches. So, so, so. <laughs> the witch <-wood> <laughs> Lovely. Oh, okay, we're not going there. <laughs> we better calibrate our audience here. But the, yes, surprise. So, so let's again. The, the, this this shift in reframing the cause is so um, no, no commercial implied here, but very 
inherent in what we try to do at, at the Center for Internet Security, right? It's not about perfection. It's, am I making reasonable decisions? So, you know, uh, overspending on security to bankrupt your business might be a lovely security decision, but it's not a very good business decision, right? So there, you know, these are, and every investment in any aspect of risk competes with other needs, other risks, for example, and as well as business imperatives. So but let's, let's go back to the term that you mentioned, which is uh, kind of a, uh, a tough one, which is reasonable. Right, so it's asserting some reasonable, and of course, uh, in my understanding, right, that's that's left. It's not defined rigidly in a mathematical sense in the statute, but it's um, presented in. A, it's a, a term of art in the legal business. Can you tell me some of the the thinking or the factors that would come into that? How would we see someone deal with this, um, uh, making the case if they've done reasonable things? Yeah, and and so what's interesting is it goes for lawyers, so. There's two 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 related dimensions of reasonableness uh, when, we, when we're talking about the ODPA specifically. So, uh, generically, tort law is is fundamentally about reasonableness. Uh, duty of care is the standard, um, but it really means you know being being reasonable in the context. And so, it's it's inherently a flexible area of law, right? What is reasonable for you to do uh, in, in, a, in a certain uh, set of circumstances? Um, will differ based on the circumstances and will change over time, right? So uh, tort law is, is eminently capable of keeping up uh, with the times. And one of the, one of the frequent analogies is um, to an old tort case where a tugboat captain, when radios were relatively new, uh, didn't have radios. Uh, and the question in the tort case was, well, should you have had radios? And, and ultimately the answer was, well, yes, because the capability now exists, right? And uh, when they, you know, at some point early on, they were, you know, they were sort of uh, an, you know, a, a sort of high level thing that you might might use um, only in certain circumstances or only if you had a certain amount of, of, of resources. But, you know, they by that point become uh, de facto the standard. Right. And cybersecurity, of course, same way. Right. Idea being we're not it, it's just not amenable to a highly prescriptive set of requirements because you're either you're both going to undershoot and overshoot and not not be able to encompass the actual risk environment of any individual organization and that risk environment's going to change over time anyway so 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 at the heart of tort law is that reasonableness sense the reasonable conformity language within the ODPA is uh, is uh, again the idea these frameworks PCI possibly, uh, you know, more to one to one side of pre prescription. HIPAA is a little bit more uh, prescriptive uh, than something else. But at bottom, right, they're risk frameworks, uh, and they tell you, um, okay, do a, do your own uh, self assessment, decide what your what your risks are and where you want to position yourself, and what's your risk appetite, um, and so. Conforming with one of them obviously cannot involve a, a tick the box set of prescriptions. Conforming with one of them inevitably involves undergoing that self-assessment, that assessment of your, of your own environment and what your risk appetite is and what your resources are, as you mentioned. Um, and so reasonable conformity with them essentially just acknowledges that, look, there's no such thing as complying with NIST. You do have to comply with HIPAA. You do have to comply with uh, um, Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act. But even complying with them, it's not the same thing as complying with other much more prescriptive laws. It really is about identifying um, what you know, what what controls you're going to choose, uh, and how you're going to what risks you have, and how you're going to mitigate them. And so, at at bottom, the analysis of whether you have reasonably conformed or not is essentially going to be going back through that risk assessment, which you almost you have to have done, frankly, and interrogating, well, from the very start, the risk posture you adopted, the risk appetite you chose, was it a reasonable given where you were at? And then the risks you prioritized, were those the, you know, were those the regional ones? And then the mitigations that you, you selected, the controls you implemented, uh, were those the right ones? And then as Sean said, you know, are you actually doing it, right? And often that's where the, you know, where the problem hits is you had a great policy, but you, you didn't patch. Um, and so, you know, it, in the abstract, it sounds kind of complicated, but at bottom, it really is. It, it really does, it, it again, shifts that focus from not were you breached 
and were there, you know, were was there private or other sensitive information compromised, and how much did it potentially damage uh, someone? But um, recognize, look, breaches are not inevitable, but they can happen in spite of an eminently reasonable program and an you know an eminently reasonable implementation, and that's the idea, right? Again, we haven't tested it; we haven't seen it tested in a case, but uh, it ought to provide the flexibility to say, yes, I was breached, but it was, you know, I, I had appropriately prioritized the risks. And even if I had identified that as a potential risk, I had appropriately categorized it as, um, you know, as lower on my framework, either because it seemed un highly unlikely um, or because I had appropriately prioritized these other bigger ones. Uh, and was planning, as you said, to to get to a point where I was going to effectively address that, but was using my resources appropriately. Yeah, and intuitively, again, speaking as a non-lawyer, right, that, that feels intuitively right, and it feels consistent with the way we think about risk in other domains. You know, we don't expect perfection, but we expect, you know, as consumers, for example, we expect reasonable behavior by a vendor to protect us from certain things, right? And some of it's codified in a formal way, and some of it's is more about expectation. This, this technology is available, or this is a, again, I'll, I'll use the term uh, known hazard, right? A hazard. You should, no, I'm not using it in the legal sense, but, but, but I think that that seems that feels about right. That walking that line and putting it in that context allows you then to think about the trade-off between should I spend a lot of money to deal with this cyber risk or this reputational risk or this financial risk or whatever else. You know, it puts it in the decision-making frame as opposed to the technology frame. Did I have the right firewall? Did I have the? Well, that that's that's really a downstream issue. That's not the the thing that we're trying to solve. So that feels uh, again, I think, um, rational and consistent. So, and as Sean said, one of Sean's jobs, right, is to try to juggle this across multiple frameworks. And so he's looking for sort of the common. You know what? What problem am I trying to solve, and how and how do I solve it? And I want to be able to explain that to multiple parties, each of whom, by the way, tends to speak a different language, of a different sort of understanding of the problem. So, but focusing on the on the really what we're trying to do here. Right? What is the problem to solve, and what are my options? And it's it's not about having an algorithm for you know I plug in or I do run down the checklist or I crack it. It's it's structuring the discussion, right? You're thinking about those issues. Your thinking and presentation of the alternatives, of your prioritization. I choose. To, I chose to do these first, and, and these were later, and that was a reasonable choice. So that that again feels very very, uh, very right. And, and if I could just add add one more point to that. So so what you tend to get it from from lawyers, right? Is and and actually I think clients as well is uh, on the one hand there's a desire and an understandable desire for for clarity and and concrete you know, that kind of highly prescriptive. Uh, but the problem is when, once you get that, of course, everyone, you know, has concerns and legitimate complaints about, well, why why do I have to do that? It just doesn't make sense. And I would be better off doing this, right? So this tries to strike that balance. Um, and, um, but but of course the, the challenge is you do, you, you do need to evolve towards some prescriptiveness, right? You need to have, because otherwise as, as uh, as you said, Tony, you know, you get this kind of like, well, I'm, you know, industry standards. I'm, I'm kind of doing this, and I'm kind of doing that. Um, and, and you know, to be a legitimate, to legitimately qualify for the defense, you really ought to have, you know, shouldn't be able to get out of jail free just because you know you did something, right? Uh, it really needs to be a legitimate, um, you know, that that hey, you really did think about this. And so, um, whether and how courts will will implement this remains to be seen. But it strikes me that the kind of work that I understand that CIS is doing can be really helpful in this, right? And so I'd, I'd love to hear more about, and I, you know, we've had some discussions about it and I've dug into your stuff, but you know, the kind of um, the sub-controls um, and, and the more specific sets of things tied to different sectors that, that you're helping to develop, I think is really gonna help maybe close that gap between, because it's still reasonableness at bottom, right? And, re, and if you've been breached, the the burden is clearly on you to demonstrate, hey, I was reasonable, right? Because, well, of course, something happened, uh, and and people were potentially harmed by it, and and so it's it's easy to look back and say, well, why didn't you do that? 
Uh, and in particular, of course, if your if your risk assessment identified that risk and you you know and you deprioritized it, there's always going to be second guessing around that. Uh, although in some ways, if you saw it and thought about it, that's better than if you just didn't even know it was out there, unless there was no good reason to know, right? Well, I think we have really tried to be conscious of of the the framing you know that is consistent with the way you've thought about it in Ohio, Brian, in that. But I will tell you a bedrock principle for me, and I think the company reflects that also, is that you know if you if you uh, the the business that I grew up in in the 80s, 70s, 80s, and beyond was what I call the special snowflake business. You know, everybody's unique, everybody's risk appetite, everybody's and it's all unique. It's you know, and therefore you you can't do anything until you do this really elaborate risk assessment process. And you know that was an implicit message of a lot of those frameworks. Uh, here's our view, and again, we can we can argue this another time. But my, my view is, th- there's a pile of bad things that we all need to deal with. And we, th- my goal has always been to raise the baseline from zero to something that I can reason about that is backed by data that has transparency and rigor. All right, and that's kind of the nature of the controls, recognizing that. Um, uh, absent knowledge of the specific circumstances, right? Or once you have knowledge of specific circumstances, you can argue away a number of these things. You can say, well, you know what? This one actually doesn't apply to me in my specific case. Or I, I'm doing something else that I think addresses that the, the uh, threat that you're trying to deal with with that safeguard. Those are all reasonable, right? But the idea was to change the discussion from zero to kind of let's start here because we have looked across the mass market of threats and problems and that's the prescriptive part, but we're also recognizing that, you know what, in your particular case, you can make a reasonable uh, argument that says I'm doing something equally as good, et cetera, or I've chosen to defer things because in my industry, the data tells us that this is in fact of a lesser concern, et cetera. But, but this whole, you know, it's a, the idea is to support that thinking and that structure to the um, decision-making. And, and I was just gonna, and that's, I, I think that's what's, been missing and, and of course when we talk about reasonable security right I, I mentioned torts but of course it's it's at the heart of the regulatory uh, frameworks as well and the FTC in particular right that is that is their touchstone um, and because they they have you know sort of challenging rulemaking authority that's not the standard they they operate primarily in that common law way of issuing um, you know essentially issuing these these orders that have and these decisions that have some reasoning in them but but to get about what you're doing so that so now you get you start to get a set of things that, that you know that get a little more fine-grained than than general NIST that you can point to and say right well one of the questions would be well you know you said you're reasonably conforming to CIS but you didn't do these two things and as long as you've documented in your in your an analysis. Well, we d- didn't do those because, as you said, we did these, right? Um, then that's what—that's exactly what what you want, as opposed to I made it up <laughs> based on industry standards, right? And so now you've got some objective, at least starting points, that both you can look to, right, as a not as a pres- as you said a prescriptive set of must dos, but as a set of things that you thought about. And as long as you documented that you thought about, it, then the analysis is around the questions are around. Well, was it appropriate for you to decide to not do those things and to do these things instead? Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's right, and we uh, we'll we'll dig into that in, uh, perhaps another day, Brian, because I think that's a great uh, uh, observation and way to talk about that. Let me let me ask you, um, you know, in the interest of time, we'll hit just a couple quick topics. So so we give great credit to, here at CIS to the work in Ohio and think it has uh, you know has shown a different framing and a different model, and and some states, other states, are, have picked up on the idea. And I think uh, f- folks have reached out to you, right, looking for background and inspiration. Any thoughts on some of these emerging models that are happening in some of the other states? Yeah. So, I mean, it's really exciting to see um, a, n- a number of states have looked at this. Uh, two states, Utah has passed a law very similar to ours. In fact, it, it actually extends a little bit more broadly. Beyond, it goes beyond tort, tort claims. So it has another a couple interesting wrinkles to it. Uh, and then Connecticut, a more limited version that's limited to punitive damages claims. Uh, and then a number of states have introduced legislation that didn't pass. And as you said, a couple have contacted uh, some some of us at Cyber Ohio, including myself. Uh, and then then it was very you know exciting to me to 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 learn when when we first met uh, that CIS was you know was actively trying to think about how it 
how how from a technical side you could close this gap, right? In terms of what is reasonable conformity, uh, and that's you know that that frankly was not a consequence we had anticipated. But as soon as I learned about it, I thought yeah, that's exactly what we need here, right? We need we need sort of both sides. Uh, obviously, if it stays in Ohio, uh, it won't have as large an effect because uh, we don't get that many data breach cases in Ohio. Um, and and so you know if, if only Ohio companies or or entities that are likely to be sued in Ohio are going to take advantage of it, we're not going to get the incentive isn't just won't have that many candidates to think about it. But as we get increasingly more states, hopefully, doing variations on it, first of all, then you you know you begin to make it more widespread, right? I mean, when when California came out with its privacy law, well, that becomes the de facto standard. Uh, you know, for any or any organization of, of any meaningful size dealing with consumers, because they're going to have some number of consumers in California. Uh, with this, because it's it's not mandatory, you got to get more states. But if you get enough states, you get a critical mass. Then all of a sudden, uh, you can start to evolve towards a standard in an organic way. Uh, but importantly, you're going to get experimentation, right? So you already have differences among the three states with these laws, and uh, that's you know th I think that's an important. Piece. It's sort of cliche to talk about the laboratory of the states, but certainly when you're talking about bottom-up incentive-based cybersecurity laws, experimentation makes a lot of sense. Uh, and again, if they're all reasonableness-based, well, you could end up getting a kind of, you know, some something close to a de facto national standard or, or at least kind of constellation of standards that all look roughly similar that at least the starting point for this. Um, that can help organizations really feel like, all right, I've got something to point to. And especially if you refine that based on size, entity size and resources, that that starts to become really you know, important because we don't have that right now. Yeah, I mean, the, given the role that we have at the at CIS, you know, we're in addition to the technology and best practice role, right? We are the multi-state ISAC. We execute that mission. So, so we live and breathe the the challenges of state and local governments every day, and are really conscious of them. And uh, so we and we we love the model and and you know where you guys have gone with this, and um, you know have spoken to lots of our, you know our friends across the country and the state and locals that uh, you know let's experiment, right? Let's learn from it in a way that is. Uh, repeatable and shareable, and you know the, the goal here is right to I, I, uh, in the original nonprofit that, that I was a part of when we, they brought into CISR. We used a tagline, sort of a coffee mug, sort of a thing, making best practice common practice, right? That is, you know, we need to find things that work in this space, and then figure out well, why don't others using it? Is it a lack of knowledge? Does it need to be tailored? Is it too specific? Should it be generalized? Is it too general? You know, we need to find those kinds of things. And that's a role that we get to play at CIS to try and bring that together. Not not to make everyone look the same, but sort of push the thinking in this in a similar direction. And I, you hit on an important thing that I think uh, more of our peers need to pay attention to. Those of us that create these uh, frameworks and technical recommendation lists or whatever, you know, we could do a lot more to make this process easier for folks like Sean. Right. So that we don't we're not all, you know, these guys like red and these and these guys like green and they like happy and they like glad. They use different languages, different levels of abstraction. And what we've created is incredible complexity, not to solve the problem, but to explain to other people that we've done something useful or responsible or whatever their model happens to be. And that is really, you know, we don't want to overspend on that part of the problem. We want to spend most of our attention on, hey, what are the bad guys doing and what do I need to do about it? What's the, the expectation? So, so uh, in the interest of time, Sean, any other any other thoughts from your your point of view? Again, you live and breathe this. Uh... Just uh, on Brian's comments on risk appetite and and absorbing that into the organization, ignorance is no uh, play on saying, well, we didn't even think about this particular risk, so we're absolved from any responsibility in that space. It doesn't work, right? You, you know, we've we've got to put into play and. Uh, I respect Brian's points on a lot of these elements. We've we've got a lot more to dig into here, um, but I think from a risk-based process, you're absolutely right. It's conceptualizing, contextualize, and being able to um, communicate effectively across multiple layers critical. And I think that the work in that Ohio and the Data Protection Act is fantastic. I can't wait to see where it goes. Hopefully, nationally. Brian, any any last thought that you would like to leave with the audience, or any other point? Yeah, I mean, I would just say generally, um, especially folks like me who come from a non-technical background, it, 
it, as you said, it can feel overwhelming. You start, you first download the NIST, uh, any of the, <laughs> the NIST variants, right? And uh, it just, you know, it, it just, it's like Greek. But it, it, at the bottom, again, it's, you know, it's worth digging in. And, and the more that we, you know, the more that we get cross-disciplinary folks really thinking about this, it's a hard problem and it's got lots of complexity to it, but there's just lots of sort of low hanging fruit in the earlier we can kind of coalesce around, uh, again, some tailored but relatively concrete things that organizations can do. It can start, it can start to feel less like just an overwhelmingly complex problem and just, you know, again, another set of risks, right? And, and as, as Sean said, you know, there's lots of those risks that we deal with all the time. And, and for some reason, you know, even big ones like, uh, you know, like, like physical threats, uh, you know, tornadoes, hurricanes, somehow we, we don't feel overwhelmed by them, even though the stakes in some ways are much higher often. Uh, but we, we sort of feel like, well, there are experts who can reasonably work with the you know, the, the, the business folks and, and figure out a, a strategy that's defensible, uh, we should be able to get there with cyber. I mean, that really- No, I, I think you're, you're right on the money, Brian. I think that's correct. And, you know, I've, I've often been, been known to say that, you know, the wizardry model of security that I grew up in, maybe the witch's brew model of security, it, it's, it's actually best at job security for old guys like me, but it's terrible public policy, right? We can't run an economy or a state or, a, you know, a company on it. And so the, the timing, I think, is right. And we really, as Sean said, appreciate the pioneering work happening in Ohio. Uh, we're fans, we're participants. Uh, for the audience, uh, actually, Brian and I will be discussing this. We're recording this now uh, prior to RSA 2022. It'd be good to get back together with friends uh, in one location uh, and uh, talk about some of these issues. And Brian will be uh, leading a discussion panel on this topic, and I'll be one of his. We'll, we'll be swapping uh, uh, conceptual locations here and let him take charge of the conversation. But uh, if you like this kind of topic, join us at RSA 2022. And uh, for the audience also, we'll be, we'll be doing a, a follow-on episode next time uh, with Chris Cronin. Uh, Brian, uh, you know, of course, uh, Chris, the, uh, the originator of CIS Risk Assessment Method. And we'll talk about a different perspective on this same challenge and how that gets kind of translated into advice to companies and so forth. So so really a, a great topic. Uh, thank you, Brian, for, for uh, bringing some light to it and, and keeping us from uh, feeling uh, overwhelmed and lost and uh, hopeful for the future that we'll be able to make some progress on this one. So uh, for, again, for the audience, thank you again for your time and attention. We always appreciate it. You can subscribe and join us in the usual ways, and we look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.